Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14 is our text for today. This is the 32nd message in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. The book of Romans was written by a missionary. One of the reasons why Paul wrote this, the longest letter in the New Testament, was to raise money for his mission endeavor to Spain. Uh, the heart of God is missions. And so today, and especially today in light of what I'm about to preach, maybe you should consider being a foreign missionary. And if not, well, it is certainly uh, your duty and your honor to help send other missionaries around the world. Uh, today's message is 35 handwritten pages, and the title of the message today is You're a Mean One, Mr. Sin. Uh, turn, please, to Romans chapter 6. As you turn, remember that God loves you. Everything that we talk about has to be motivated by the love of God. Listen as I read our text today, Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Our Father in heaven, it is our desire today to be ruled by your Spirit and not be ruled by sin. Lord, it is our desire today to present our members to you as instruments of righteousness. Lord, it is certain that we can learn about these things and still not do them. And so, Lord, I'm going to ask for you today on this Christmas Eve to do something special. And that is, Lord, I'm going to ask you to move in the hearts of your people where your spirit dwells, Lord, and move them from where they are now, Lord, in the direction of righteousness for their good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Jesus is not from Bethlehem. Uh, he was born, born, born in Bethlehem. He is from Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth is about 70 miles as the crow flies to the north. He was raised in Nazareth, and therefore he is from Nazareth. Uh, our first son, Parker, was born in Columbia, South Carolina. We moved here to New York when he was 11 months old. Never once have I ever heard him say, I am from South Carolina. He is from New York. He left here when he was almost 17 years old. He's never been back to live here, uh, but he is from here because he was raised here. If you were born in the backseat of a taxi cab, you would not say, I am from yellow taxi cab. If you were born on a cruise ship, you would not say, I am from Carnival. Went to see baby Jordan Kill at North Shore Hospital on Wednesday. She will never, when she's growing up, say, I am from North Shore Hospital. Uh, where you are from is not where you were born. Where you are from is where you were raised as a child. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he is from Nazareth. Now, how do we explain this? How did this happen? 
Well, in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we are told that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor. When a decree would go out in the empire, you were obligated to obey that. And a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, or as it says in the King James Version, that they should be taxed. Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth, 70 miles north of Bethlehem. But Joseph's people were from Bethlehem, and so they had to make the 70-mile journey, Joseph and his pregnant wife, because someone who was reigning, and that's our key word right now, someone who was reigning, said that he needed to do that. You understand why they went? The reason why they went is because someone who was reigning said that they needed to do that. Well, the reign of Caesar Augustus is what forced Joseph and Mary to make the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. When Jesus was a teenager, and I think in my 40 years of ministry, I have never made reference to Jesus as a teenager, but something very important happened when Jesus was a teenager. On August 19th, A.D. 14, Caesar Augustus died at the age of 75. He died of natural causes. Do you know what happened when he died? This is key. He stopped telling people what to do. When he died, he stopped telling people what to do. Do you know why? Because he was dead. And therefore, he no longer reigned. Now that is the extent of the Christmas content of the message today. So Merry Christmas. Had to work it in somehow. In Romans 6, Paul has been driving home the point that we are dead to sin. That we are dead to sin and alive to God. And if we are dead to sin, then sin no longer reigns any more than on August 20th, A.D. 14, Caesar Augustus reigned. You cannot reign if you are dead. You see, we were joined to Christ in his crucifixion, and therefore we are dead to sin. And we were joined to Christ in his resurrection, and therefore we are alive to God. Uh, we are dead to sin, meaning that Christ died for our sins. Uh, not that we are not interested in sin anymore, because we are still interested in sin. But when it says we are dead to sin, it means Christ died for our sins. And we are alive to God in Christ Jesus, meaning that we are spiritually alive now and that we will be alive forevermore. Well, this is what Paul has been spelling out in the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 6. And there are some ramifications to this. And we looked at this last week. Number one is because of this, we are now those who walk in newness of life. Number two, we are now those who are no longer enslaved to sin. And number three, we are to consider, to think about, to meditate upon, to contemplate these spiritual realities. Which brings us to our text today, Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. And in it, Paul is first of all going to tell them what not to do, and then he's going to tell them what to do, and then he's going to tell them why they are able to do all of this. And I'm going to shorten that and present an outline to you, which is point number one, do not. Point number two, do. And point number three, why? 
Point number one, do not. This comes from chapter 6, verse 12, and the first half of verse 13. As I said, up to this point in chapter 6, there has been very little practical application, but there has been a lot of explanation about what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God. Uh, Very little, however, in terms of instruction for Christian living. In fact, the only command that we have received thus far is in verse 11 where we are told to consider, and that exclusively is confined to the mind and to thinking. Now as we move into verses 12 through 14, Paul is going to put a little more shoe leather on the theology. And he starts off with do not. Do not do. Verse 12 and half of verse 13 read as follows. Let not, do not, let not sin, therefore, in light of what everything that he has just said, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not, that is our point, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Do not allow. In other words, resist, fight back, rebel against the reign of sin. Uh, The imagery here is that of kingship and that of dominion. If Caesar Augustus is in charge, then you need to do what he says. If sin is king and if sin is reigning, then when sin speaks, you have to obey. And Paul says that you are dead to sin and therefore sin is not reigning. And Paul says, you don't have to be ruled by sin anymore. So fight back and say no. But I am not saying just say no, as the drug prevention campaign of the 1980s said, because the no that you say has to be prefaced with gospel impetus. Back in the 1980s, when we tried to encourage people not to take drugs, all we said was, just say no. Well... Where's the power coming from to say no? No, no, he's not saying just say no, but there's a no, and that no is prefaced with volumes of gospel impetus. The no that you say is empowered, and it is modeled, and it is motivated, and it is informed by the gospel which says this, God loved you. And he sent Jesus to die for you. And Jesus really did die for you. And he died for all of your sins. And he was buried and he was raised again to life. And someone came along and brought you the gospel. And when you heard this gospel, you believed it. And when you believed it, you were changed. And you were brought to life in light of that gospel which has brought you to life. Therefore, you have the power to say no. You don't just walk into a bank and say I would like to take out $1,000. You cannot do that unless and until you have deposited at least $1,000. You say no to sin with meaning only when you have been born again through the gospel. And Paul defines what the sin looks like and the reign of sin looks like. He says it is a passion to obey its passion. This is not external, but this is something that is internal. Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. 
<clears throat> what is passion? Passion is that inner voice which says, stop what you are doing right now and pay attention to me. Get up from where you are seated and go where your heart leads you to go and do exactly what it says and do it right now. If your heart says, go to the liquor cabinet and drink until you are drunk, then you obey because you are under the dominion and the rule of that alcohol. If your heart says, pull out your phone and look at sexually explicit images, well, then you obey. You say, Pastor, are you going to talk about pornography every week? Like, could you give us a break on Christmas? I will stop talking about pornography when I stop getting weekly reports of men who are falling into it. It is the bane of our existence. And it is perhaps the most uh, prolific example of how sin is ripping us apart. Your sin says to you, pull out your phone and look at that. You obey what it says. If your heart says, sleep with your boyfriend or sleep with your girlfriend, you do what it says. If your heart says, turn on your television and watch whatever you want, no matter how profane it is, you obey that. If your heart says, explode in a fit of rage with a foul mouth, then you do what your heart says. If your heart says, prioritize sports or leisure above the church, then you listen to your heart. If your heart says, gossip, then you start talking to everyone about everything that you know. And Paul says, no, no, do not. Point number one, do not. Do not listen to your passions. Tell your passions that you are not my boss anymore. Sin, you have never been kind to me. You have always made my life worse. You stole not only Christmas, but you stole joy from me every day of my life. You're a mean one, Mr. Sin. You really are a heel. No, I am not going to listen to you anymore. I don't work here anymore. You don't rule over me anymore, Caesar Augustus. You are dead. You don't rule over me anymore, Sin. You are dead, and I am dead to you. And listen, the reason that you can do this with confidence is the word in the text, therefore. Verse 12, therefore. The rationale, the reason, the power. Verse 12, look at it again. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And so therefore, in light of the fact that Christ died, and when He died, you died to sin, and in light of the fact that you are alive to God because you are in Christ. Therefore, sin simply does not have the authority to boss you around anymore. So don't let him do it. What's encouraging here is that Paul says, don't let it happen. Because implied in the don't let it happen is the understanding that we are capable of obeying this. Those of you that are familiar with football, you know that sometimes when a coach is coaching the defensive back and he's lined up across from a receiver and the receiver is going out for the ball, the coach will say, don't let him get behind you. Don't let him get behind you. What is implied in that? What is implied in that is that the defensive back has legs which are fast enough to make sure that the receiver does not get behind him. Now, could you imagine if a coach were speaking to me? 
don't let him get behind you. What do you mean, don't let him get behind you? I can't even run. I'm working with one fake hip and another bad hip. I can't run. You would never say that to me because I could never obey it. But when Paul says, don't let it happen, he is implying that you are capable of doing it. It is possible. That is encouraging. You see, you have every, every right in the world to tell sin and its passion no. Now, you might not believe that, but the Word of God says that's true. You might believe that you are dominated by sin, but the Word of God says that you are not. Paul gets more specific, and he itemizes in verse 13. Once again, it is negative. It is, it is along the lines of do not, the do not theme. But in verse 13, he says, do not present your members, your individual members, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. The word instrument there probably carries with it the imagery of a weapon. This is probably talking about warfare. Although any tool, any instrument, any vehicle, any means, any entity can fit this as well. And the imagery is that you have members or entities or aspects to your life. For example, your thinking, your time, your affections, your money, your body, your words, your labor, your wit, your beauty, your intellect, your influence, your home, your car, your skill, you name it. If it is usable, then it is valuable. It is a member. It is a tool. It is a weapon. It is an entity. And sin will say, give me that. I need to borrow that in order to promote and enhance unrighteousness. Just like your neighbor coming to you and saying, will you loan me your lawnmower? Well, why do you need it? I need it so that I can cut my lawn. Sin wants to borrow your money and your talent and your intellect and your time in order to advance unrighteousness. And in light of the gospel, Paul is saying, when he knocks on the door and says, let me borrow that, you are to say, you must say no. You must say no. You are attractive. Here's what sin will say to you. I need your help. I need you to dress in a salacious way. I need you to carry yourself in a way which is alluring. I need you to show off your beauty in a way which is wrong so that you can lead people to lust. You are bright. You are quick. You are quick-witted. And sin says, I need you to give me your words so that you can cut people down and make them feel small. Uh, you are convincing. You are a good liar. And at the same time, you are good at math and you are savvy at dealing with your employer's books. And sin says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to give me your accounting skills and in return, I will pad your pocket. Uh, sin is not only interested, however, in recruiting from the bright and the beautiful, but sin will accept contributions from the old and from the miserable. He will take your complaining and he will take your bitterness. He will take whatever you give him. Sin doesn't care how much or how little you have. Sin is recruiting from every member of your existence. And Paul says, you don't have to obey. You do not have to donate. 
In fact, he takes it further and says, do not obey, do not donate. So last weekend, there were some students here who were potential interns. As I was taking them to the Long Island Railroad, I was giving them some instructions about going into the city. And I said, listen, as you are walking down the street and someone approaches you and wants to talk to you, do not look at them, do not establish eye contact, keep walking, you do not have to talk to them. Just keep going, it is a scam, just keep walking. Eight hours later, I picked them up at the Long Island Railroad, and one of them says, so-and-so, whose name will stay out of this sermon now, but if he becomes an intern, he will be reminded of this publicly every week, but for now, we haven't gotten him to agree to be an intern. They said, well, he got scammed. I said, what happened? Some people stopped him and asked them, asked him if he wanted to donate to a children's charity. We went up to him and we said, keep walking. And when we said, keep walking, the people asking for the donations said, mind your own business. He can give if he wants to. And so he pulled out his phone and he Venmoed the individual $20 for children. Why? I said, why did you do that? He said, I felt like I had to. I, I felt pressured. I felt like I had to. That's what sin is like. It comes to us and it talks to us and it makes us feel as though we have to. No, you didn't have to talk to that person at all. Keep walking. Do not feel like you need to submit to the reign of sin in your day-to-day -day life. Paul says you don't have to, so don't do it. Now, I understand that sin is deceptive. And I understand in verse 12 that we are still in our mortal bodies. In other words, this body that you're living in right now is not your glorified body. It will die. And in this life, you will always be drawn to sin. Your flesh is alive and it is hungry for sin. And Paul is not saying that you will never be tempted. And Paul is not saying that you will never sin. Paul is not saying that this will be easy. In fact, it will be difficult. When we get to chapter 8, verse 13 of Romans, Paul is going to ask you to commit a murder. He's going to say, mortify sin, put to death sin in your body. It is not easy. It is difficult, and it is a fight. And what Paul is saying here is, fight back. Do not allow sin to reign do not submit your passions to it. You don't have to listen. Um, I'm glad that the children are not in the room right now. Don't tell them this illustration, but it is our practice at Camp Impact every year uh, to play a prank on some of the children and to leave them with the impression that we are going to send them home. Uh, we we uh, we set them up. We frame them. They commit no crime. We catch them committing this fake crime, and we pull them aside and we say, "We're going to send you home." We've been doing this since 1998. It's just it's just one of the joys of of youth camp. 
So back in 1999, we were, we were doing it, and one of our counselors uh, intercepted us, and he caught one of the students before he came in for the interrogation, and he said, listen, this is a prank. You don't have to listen to anything that they say. You didn't do anything wrong. They can't send you home. And it was beautiful because the kid was about five feet tall. I mean, he was, he was not a big kid. And the one speaking to him was Alec Millen, who is six foot seven, 280 pounds. And Alec says to the kid, we caught you. I'm calling your father. We're sending you home. And the kid looks up at Alec and he says, you're not sending me home. You can't send me home. You don't have any authority over me at all. And, and Alec is like, I want to send you home now. You know, like, like th that really is what it's like with sin. Sin comes to you and says, you have to obey me. No, you don't. You don't have to obey at all. The, the reign of sin is dead. Do not allow sin to reign. Do not submit your passions to it. Say no and resist. And you say, I try to resist, but I just can't. Well, let me ask, how vigorous is your struggle? How much do you fight back? When I used to wrestle... One thing that would happen in a wrestling match is that there would be communication that would happen between yourself and your opponent. It wasn't verbal, but, but it was clear communication. And usually you can tell within the first few seconds of the match who's going to win the match because you can tell whether or not your opponent is trying or whether your opponent is just going through the motions. And there were times when I got pinned by my opponent he knew that I was not resisting. And there were times that I pinned my opponents and I knew that they just wanted the match to be over. There was no resistance at all. Well, I would like you to review your resistance. How hard did you sweat to resist that sin? Or how quickly did you tap out? And Paul says, be stubborn. Don't tap out. And again, I go back to the subject of pornography. You speak to someone about it. I'm so sorry, Pastor. I, I'm, I'm wrong. I'm, I'm not going to do that again. A few weeks later, same thing. I am so sorry, Pastor. I feel so bad. I'm not going to do it again. Again, a few weeks later, same thing. And then you ask the question, how did you come upon this pornography? Well, it was on my phone. Okay. Well, would you ever consider disabling your phone? Would you, would you ever consider having a phone which did not have internet access? Well, that's too radical. Well, do you have another solution? My solution to you is, if that is a problem for you, then do not have a phone that has internet access. Uh, uh, the, the next time you sin with your phone, th think of me in this sermon. Uh, I, let me, let's just stop right there. If you are tempted to lust, 
just think of me and you'll never struggle again. But, but, but think specifically of this portion of the sermon. And think of me saying to you, see, like, why, why when I try to tell a joke, you... I don't need you. My, my grandkids love me. Uh, from God's Word, think of this portion of the sermon. When you were warned ahead of time, do not submit, resist. Which in part means do not allow the enemy to come into your house with a loaded gun. Romans 13.14 Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In other words, do not possess a phone in which you have access to sin by viewing pornography. It is the equivalent of inviting someone who intends to hurt you into your home with a loaded gun. It is letting, it is allowing sin to reign. And Paul says, don't do it. Do not let sin reign. It is the presenting of your members as instruments of unrighteousness. And God says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. That's point number one. Do not. Now we move on to point number two, and that is do. This is in the second half of verse 13. And it says, but by contrast, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do, do what? Do present yourselves to God. Uh, let's think for a moment about the to God. Now we are clearly speaking about morality, and morality is and does include a set of rules, and that rule, those rules, they impact our behavior. And so there is something to do, but I don't want you to lose this. In fact, this might be the most important thing I will tell you today. It is the little phrase, to God. It is not morality which is detached from relationship. It is not morality which is detached from relationship. It is not rules and effort in and of themselves, but it is practical action in the context of your relationship of love with the Lord. So, for example, if it snows this winter and there is a widow in the church and she needs assistance shoveling her walk, as you are moving the snow from the sidewalk to the lawn, is it about the removal of the snow? Or is it about your love and friendship with that widow who is a fellow church member? Why am I here? Am I here to get the snow off of the walk? Well, I am getting the snow off of the walk. No, I am doing it because I love the woman in that house. And so, first of all, Paul says, present yourself to God. Yeah, there's some things that you should do and some things that you should not do. But it's not primarily a set of rules, do and don't. But it is a presentation of yourself to God, your Father, the One who elected you, the One who sustains you, the One who has saved you, the One who loves you. Have you been able to remember as we're roughly halfway through this sermon that God loves you? That is what drives our obedience, our love for God. Why? Because He first loved us. 
present yourself not primarily to his work, although you are called upon to work, but present yourself to him, to God himself. And as you do, please note in verse 13 that the mindset of this presentation of yourself to God is the gospel. And the gospel is of first importance. And you say, Pastor, where do you see the gospel? The gospel is just as clear as can be. As those who have been brought from death to life. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our being joined to Christ in that resurrection which gives us a foundation theologically and it gives us a hope and a position of life eternally and it is the resurrection which gives us a perspective on application practically in other words you were dead you were dead spiritually and you were headed toward and deserving of death eternally you were living a life in the here and now as a dead person in your sins and trespasses practically but then something happened what happened there was a resurrection historically there was a resurrection Jesus died for your sins and he was literally raised to life three days later. And spiritually speaking, because you were joined to him in his resurrection, practically speaking, in the now, in light of the gospel, you walk in newness of life. The old has gone and the new has come. In other words, you don't steal corn from old ladies and throw them at people when they're getting out of their car. I once was blind, but now I see. I am behaving like I am alive because I am alive. And I'm doing it in relation to the one that loved me. The presentation of your life to God is possible and it is achievable and it is certain based upon your new life. And in verse 13, Paul then moves from the overarching presentation of yourself to God, now also to the particular compartmentalized presentation of your members, your weapons, your entities, your instruments, your tools, your vehicles, your means in life. Ten minutes ago, I gave you a, a list of do not present these. They gave several examples of sin asking for your specific resources, your beauty, your intellect, your influence, etc. And the application was, say no. In light of the gospel, say no. Do not yield. Do not submit. Do not surrender. Fight. Resist. Rebel. Say no. Now, as we are on point number two, it is do. And these things are parallel. The points of application are say yes to the Lord in specific areas of your life with your individual personal faculties and members to God as instruments of righteousness. In other words, to the end that there would be righteous living. Literally what it means is to place these at God's disposal. They are yours, God. Do with them whatever you want. I had a friend in seminary he was giving me his testimony. He was a man from Kentucky. And he talked about his life. And his life was, was horrible. Family life, personal life. It, it was just, it was a wreck. And he hears the gospel. And the first thing he says 
when he is repenting before God. This is really precious. He said, I'm not worth anything. But Lord, whatever there is here, you can have it. If you want it, why would you even want it? But whatever it is, it's not mine anymore. It's yours, Lord. See, I'm not a big believer in New Year's resolutions. But I am a big fan of repentance and commitment at any time of the year. It just so happens to be that this sermon is being preached close to January 1st. So what I'm about to say is not with a view toward turning over a new leaf in 2024. It is about you today, on December 24th, making a resolution to go all out for Jesus this very hour, no turning back. And following through with your commitments and following through with your conviction to present every area of your life at God's disposal. Let me speak technically for just a moment. Interestingly, in Greek, the do not, remember point number one was do not. Point number one, the do not presentation. uh, The verb there is in the present tense. Whereas the do, right now we're in point number two, and that is the do section, the verb do, present yourselves to God, that is in the aorist tense, which is a confusing way of saying that the acts of saying no to sin demand a present, ongoing, continuous no, no, no. Whereas the presentation of ourselves to God in the yes, in the do, is more of a one-time resolve commitment. Not that it doesn't need to be refreshed daily or even hourly, but the start of it in the do section is you coming to a point where you stop and you repent and you lay it all on the altar and you say, right now, I am yours and I am all yours. I am surrendering myself to you in all-out commitment to the Lord. And just as it is broken down with the do-not section into individual members of your person submitting not to sin, so too here it is parallel. Look at your text. Here at the end of verse 13, Paul wants you to itemize and intentionally think about deliberately giving every aspect of your life individually before God. Before I talk about some of those entities, please consider the proverb that a good offense is the best defense. That's not in the Bible, but it's absolutely true. In other words, the best way to fight sin is to pursue righteousness. It's difficult to give your members over to unrighteousness when they are busy and engaged in the pursuit of righteousness. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Again, that is a very good proverb, not in the Bible, but it is true. If you would sell out for Jesus and give Him your all, you would have little time and little energy and little interest in being ruled by sin. You understand what I'm saying here? If you would make a total commitment of your life to the Lord, what would happen is your desires would change. 
Remember what it says in the Psalms. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. I used to think that that meant that if I would delight myself in the Lord, then God would give me all of the evil desires that I currently had. It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is, if you delight yourself in the Lord, the desires of your heart will change. And you will then want things that are different, and God will give you those things in accordance with His holy will. I think one of the reasons why you struggle with sin is because you are so uninvolved in the local church, which is the bride of Christ. So give Him little time, give Him little energy, give Him little interest, and you will be ruled by sin. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to lovingly challenge you to repent of your lack of commitment to the Lord. Take the time. Let's talk about time, first of all. Your most valuable resource. Take the time that God has given you and submit it to God as an instrument of righteousness with respect to commitment to the local church. Why does it begin with the local church? Because the local church is that which is most precious to God Himself. It is the means by which He has chosen to advance His kingdom on earth. It is the means by which He has chosen to sanctify us. And so submit yourselves to the Lord's day for worship. And do not allow sports or entertainment or leisure or earning a few extra bucks to keep you away from gathering with the saints. Now we do understand that there are times when the ox is in the ditch and you must work or you must care for a sick loved one. I'm not talking about those times. I'm talking about when the ox is not in the ditch. You simply choose not to attend the worship service. You simply attend not to go to the Bible study. You choose to skip the prayer meeting. You choose volitionally to skip church night. And when you do come, are you coming with your best? God says in Malachi, take your sick animals, offer it to your governor, and see if they'll accept that. They won't. Well, what makes you think that you can offer to Jesus Christ something then your, other than your best? Come with your best. Come on time. Come prepared. Come ready to serve. Come ready to encourage. Present all that is in you to the Lord on the Lord's day, in the Lord's house, with the Lord's people. It belongs to Him. Why are you holding on to it as if it is yours? Has God made you alive from the dead? If He is not, then there is no reason why you should be interested in what I'm talking about right now. But if you were dead, but now you're alive through the Gospel, then do not give the appearance that you are a spiritual zombie with respect to church commitment. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you right now. Not today, but right now. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you right now. Can you honestly have a conversation right now with the Holy Spirit and say, I am giving the church my very best. 
participate in the providential fellowship. Why? So that you can get to know the people of God. Participate in the getting to know you initiative. Why? So that you can get to know the people of God. They are precious to God. But it's not just the church, but what about your home? Have you presented your home to God as an instrument of righteousness with respect to hospitality and the hosting of saints who visit from out of town and the feeding of the brethren in fellowship meals? Have you presented your home to the Lord? What about your mind? What about your intellect, your knowledge? Has that been presented to the Lord? But would you be helped if you started to attend Wednesday night Bible studies with respect to presenting your mind to the Lord? Would you be helped if you selected a passage of Scripture and started to memorize it? Would you be helped if you were on a Bible reading plan? Would you be helped if you were reading an edifying Christian book? Does the Lord have your mind? Now we know that some of you are brighter than others. Have you presented your mind, your education, your learning to God to be an instrument of righteousness regardless of how bright or how dull you may be? What about your words? What about your voice? What about your communication? Since you walked into the building today, have you used your voice to encourage the saints? Have you said thank you to anyone for anything? Have you greeted the saints for we are commanded to greet one another? What about your text? What about your emails? What about your social media presence? Is that submitted to the Lord God as an instrument of righteousness? When you sang this morning, was it sincere? Was it joyful? Was it expressive? Was it your best presentation to God? I'm not asking, do you have a good voice? I'm asking, did God Get the voice that He gave you. Did He get the best? See, I think it's time for some of you to say, God, I submit my lips to You. Please use them for Your glory, for the glory of Your name. My mouth belongs to You. Use my words. They are Yours. The breath that I have been given, the tongue that has been formed, the brain which crafts the message it's all a gift which has been given to you freely and god says now what i want you to do is take it and use it for me use it to speak the word to those that are perishing faith comes by hearing the word speak the word to those that are perishing your time your commitment your home your mind your words and what about your life Every week, I ask you to ask yourself, does God want you to be a missionary? Do you hear the voice of God saying, here am I, Lord, send me. Or are you saying to the Lord, here am I, send me, in light of the Lord's call, who will go for us? Whatever else it might be, since you are alive from the dead, Submit, yield, surrender, present it to the Lord. Hear the words of this beautiful hymn. Take my life and let it be. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. 
Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Always take my voice and let me sing. Always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my love, my God, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Point number one, do not yield yourself to sin. You, you, you don't have to obey. Number two, do present yourself to God. The wise men walked in and they presented, they offered to Jesus gold, incense, myrrh. Which brings us to point number three, why? How is a lifestyle of righteousness possible? Well, that's answered in verse 14, Romans 6, 14. Sin will not have dominion over you. Notice it doesn't say, do not let sin have dominion over you. It, 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 is, it is a statement. It is not a command. Sin, for sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Since you are not under law, but under grace. I know that it is redundant, but I have to define the word dominion. There's a difference between committing a sin and sin having dominion. Dominion is slavery. Dominion is total rule. It is a lifestyle. It is in charge of the overarching direction of your life. And Paul says, if you are alive as one who is alive from the dead, sin will not have dominion. Why not? Since you are not under law, but under grace. Here's what this does not mean. I hear people say, we're not under law, we're under grace. And what they, what they, what the, the tone of that is usually in the context of Christian liberty, which moves into the area of sin and says, hey, we're not under law, we're under grace. That's not what it means at all. What Paul is saying here with respect to law and grace is this. You used to be under the dominion or the rule of law, meaning the law of Moses. The law was brought about through Moses on Mount Sinai. And during the Mosaic legislation, the people were horrible. They were absolutely horrible. How did they live during that time? They were selfish. They were idolatrous. They were wicked. Sometimes they were more wicked than the nations around them. And Paul says, you are not under law anymore but you are living in a new era. You are living now in the new covenant. You are under grace. And grace doesn't mean that, 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 that basically you have fire insurance or that you have a get-out-of-jail-free card. Grace frees you up not to do whatever you want to do, but grace frees you up to do what you should do and what you're commanded to do. Grace, according to Titus chapter 2, verse 11, says this, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And what does that grace do? It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
Grace is not, oh well, I tried but I didn't do it, but that's okay because I'm under grace. What grace means is that we are living under the reign of grace. And Paul's point in Romans 6.14 is that there is a reason why that makes a difference. And what is that difference? What is the difference between the old covenant person that was living under the law? Remember what it says in John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, but by contrast, grace and truth come through Jesus. What is the difference when it comes to the new covenant? What practical difference does it mean to be under grace and not under law? The one key feature which separates the old covenant and differentiates the old covenant from the new covenant here we go, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The bottom line is this. The reason why sin won't and can't dominate you is because there is someone living inside of you that will not allow that to happen. And the reason why you can say no to sin is because of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why you can not just submit, but gladly Submit your members to God is because of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the era of grace which is currently indwelling every believer. And so I give you one final word as we close today. I've asked you to think about presenting your time and your home and your commitment, your mind and your life to the Lord. Please do that. But please understand the way that you do that is by yielding to the Holy Spirit. You are under grace. Paul will develop life in the new covenant under the power of the Holy Spirit further in upcoming chapters. But for now, because of the Gospel, submit every area of your life to God, the God who loves you. And I know that you can and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I know that you will because God loves you and His Spirit is within you and you can hear this message without being offended. In fact, you can hear this message today because of the power of the Holy Spirit and you can say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Lord, I want to give You my all. Well, 152 down, 200, uh, 281 to go, which means what? Amen. means that we are getting there. We are getting there. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray in the name of Jesus that You, by Your Spirit, would now move in Your people. Lord, that You would give them that power, that power, Lord, to submit to everything that You're calling them to do. The power to say no to sin and the power to say yes to righteousness. God, please rule in the hearts and lives of Your people. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.